Amen, amen. <clears throat> Thanks, Rob. Um, like Rob said, my name is Jared Cole. Uh, my family and I, we moved here, what, about five weeks ago now, uh, last Friday. And man, we've really been enjoying our time here. If you haven't met me yet, please come up and meet me. I would love to meet you, uh, have some conversation, say a little bit about myself. And I'd love to hear some things about you as well. Uh, but my family and I, we're really excited to be here in, in Madison. And we were excited to come here before we got here. But when we got here, man, like all the expectations were superseded. We heard about a church that really loved the community. We heard about a church that was really about college students. And we came here and that was really important for us because we want to go see something like this happen also in Milwaukee. And man, it's just been such a joy to see uh, the lip service get put to work. Uh, just this past Friday night, we had a, a jump night. And it's so cool to have a facility like this that's not only used for Sunday morning gatherings for you guys to come here and worship Jesus, but it's also an outreach event for people to come in from the outside to build relationship, to cross-pollinate in some sense. I think that's beautiful, right? The house of God should be a place where that's possible. Just the last couple of days, uh, I spent like most of my waking hours in the last 48 hours with a group of college students uh, here at this church. Are the college students in the building? Can you make some noise, please? There you go. There you go. So those voices you just heard, like th those are some of the, the leading Christian leaders on the campus of UW-Madison in this city. And we got a chance, myself and some of the Salt Company staff, to just really lean in, build a relationship, and pour into these students. And they're real eager coming up this next week to run onto this campus and get ready as we kick off Salt Company, our Thursday night college gatherings, college ministry gatherings, with mission trip to campus. Their whole goal is to see this campus come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'm excited to be walking alongside you guys with that as well uh, as my time here. And so if you guys are new here, that's good, so am I. But we just jumped into a new series. Those of you who were here, uh, we were in 1 John, and now we're doing this four-week series called God Is. And in this series, we'll be going through a handful of attributes about God. And last week, uh, my good friend Nate spoke on the holiness of God as he took us through chapter 6 and one of the major prophets, Isaiah. This week, the title of the sermon is going to be God is Faithful, as we'll be looking at the first few chapters in the book of Hosea. So as I was preparing the sermon all week long, I was thinking back to Nate's sermon, and there was something that he said in that sermon that kind of stuck out to me, and it's probably something that he doesn't remember that well because he doesn't preach with notes, but I actually wrote this down. And he said this, if we don't get God right, it's hard to get much else right. If we don't understand God for who he really is, then, then nothing else falls into place. But then he said this, but if we begin to understand who he is, everything else is going to begin to make a little more sense. And my brother, I think that that is a profound thought you had. And I think it's good and right for us to carry that thought through the rest of this series. See, we understand who God is everything else begins to fall in place. If we want to make sense of the things in our lives, the things that make sense and even the things that don't, 
We have to rightly understand who God really is, and included in that is that we have to understand that God is faithful. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Hosea if you haven't already. It's a book that's towards the back half of the Old Testament. It's right after the book of Daniel. The table of contents will be your friend this morning. And as you're turning there, I want you guys to think of something for me. Think of the last time that you felt God's faithfulness. And as you're thinking, you're probably thinking about some of the the highs in your life, right? The things that are going well in your life. The time when you graduated college, the time when you bought your first car, the time when you got your first job, the time when you got that raise, that promotion. You had in your mind this dollar amount you wanted to make as you were working. And when you finally hit that, man, yo, you, you, you saw God's faithfulness in that. God brought you a spouse and you got married. You have been praying for a spouse. God can be faithful in those things. Now, think about one of the worst things that's ever happened in your life. Not like one of the the shallow things, but one of those real deep things, right? One of the things that you just wish you can erase from your memory. Can you see the faithfulness of God there? You see, most of us are capable of seeing the faithfulness of God in the peaks of our lives, but we're often anemic at seeing the faithfulness of God in the valleys of our lives. Let me tell you what I mean about the valley for a second. See, sometimes the valley is a place that we enter into by circumstance. Some things happen outside of our control, natural disaster, miscarriage, something like that. But then also we can enter into the value by will. You see, the dark place we find ourselves in was actually our own doing. Maybe we didn't know the complete consequences or the real implications of what we were doing, but this thing that we fell headlong into, not knowing the repercussions, yet willingly, we did so thinking that at some point we were going to be benefiting from it in the first place. You see, the valley is a place where we're tempted to fall into despair and shame and bitterness and anger or hard-heartedness. The valley feels often like a divine timeout. The kids in the room kind of understand this. Everybody, you remember this, right? As a kid getting put into timeout, when you deserved it, you felt shame, right? But when you didn't really feel like you deserved it, this this bitterness and this anger kind of welled up in you. But here's the thing about the valley. I want us to see this in the Bible today, that God never intends the valley to be a place of condemnation, but he intends the valley to be a place of correction. And if it's a place of correction, there has to be a teacher there to do the correcting. See, we're tempted to think we're alone. In reality, God and his faithfulness has never left our side. I want to illustrate this by two passages in the Psalms. Uh, King David penned a lot of the psalms in our Bible. And one of the most common psalms is Psalm 23. A lot of us can recite at the top of our heads. But in Psalm 23, there's this particular verse in verse 4 where he writes this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
This is what I like to call a psalm that, that gives light to being able to walk into the valley by circumstance. It wasn't really on the person's own doing, but circumstantially, you can recite this psalm and you can gain some kind of comfort because you have happened to find yourself into a valley. But then there's also Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 has a little bit of a different tone, right? We know the life of David. He sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba, who's not his wife, who's one of his boy's wives. And he's supposed to be out at war. But instead he stays home, he goes up to his rooftop, sees her and says, yo, I want her. He sends for her, she comes to him. They end up doing a deed and they have an illegitimate child. And the prophet of the time, Nathan, he comes to David. And Nathan was like a mirror in front of David's face. And Nathan's whole purpose was to show up to David give him this, this parable and allow him to see that what he did was wrong. He comes to David and he says, yo, there's this rich man and there's a poor man. The rich man has this whole heap of sheep and this poor man only has one. The rich man came to the poor man and said, give me your one sheep. And so he did. And Nathan says, what should happen to this rich man? And David said, man, this man should die. That was an injustice. And Nathan looks right at him and says, well, that man is you. And when that very reality broke his spirit and he came to a point where he was at the end of himself and he realized that the valley that he now found himself in was the valley that he willingly went into, this is what he writes in Psalm 51. He says this, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face away from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. See what David was articulating in both of these passages is the faithfulness of God. A picture of a sheep trusting in a dry and dark place, whether by circumstance or by will, that there is a shepherd, someone there with him to God, correct and comfort them. This is the faithfulness of God in the valley. This idea of faithfulness, we, we tend to think of it as this celebratory word. We celebrate God's faithfulness as we should but there's nuance in there, right? Because faithfulness isn't necessarily and only a celebratory word, but it's more of an encouraging word. And God's faithfulness is something we need to be reminded of, not only in the peaks, but also in the valleys, even the ones that we dig ourselves. So as we dive into our text, here's the main point I want us to get today. God is faithful, even when we're not. And I think this is the message we get when we dive into the book of Hosea. And so if you get into the book, man, here's, here's what I want to do for us. I want to give us an overview of how I want to break this down. In the book of Hosea, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see God is faithful in his commands. We'll see that God is faithful in his judgment. And we'll see that God is faithful in his pursuit. 
See, Hosea was a prophet over the people of Israel. And he's sometimes referred to as the deathbed prophet because he prophesied to the northern kingdom just really much before the Assyrian invasion in 722 B.C. And here's what the word of the Lord said when it came to Hosea. Look at verse 1 with me. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beer, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. Okay, wow. If you're new to the church, if you're new to the Bible, you're hearing this verse. Maybe for the first time, you're like, okay, like, what did I just step into? What a way to kick us off, right? Like, here's Hosea, and he gets a word from God, and the very first thing that he gets is hey, go find you a wayward woman. In some translations, it says a woman of whoredom. In some translations, it says a prostitute. In some translations, it says a promiscuous woman. You can take your pick, whichever one you want to choose here. Could you imagine being in Hosea's shoes? Imagine you're Hosea, and you're single, and you've been looking for a wife, and you've dated a little bit, but really haven't found any real prospects. <laughs> and God comes to you and he's like, yo, do, do I have the woman for you? And Hosea's like, I'm listening, Lord. <laughs> and he goes, first off, her name's going to be Gomer. <laughs> and he's like, you know, <laughs> you know he, he jumps back a little bit. I don't know how many Gomers you guys know, but I don't know that many Gomers. The only Gomer I know is Gomer Pyle, right? I mean, that's, that's taking us back, my older generation. We know a little something about that. But he says her name's going to be Gomer. And not only that, but she's going to have a reputation. She's going to be unfaithful. And she will only be unfaithful, but the kids you're going to have, I'm not really going to like them that much. And so Hosea, I'm sure... I mean, the response here is immediate, but I wonder what was going on through his mind. Was he concerned a little bit? He would have to go in his future to places he had never gone before. He would have to extend a grace that he had never extended before. You see, some scholars differ on what it means that Gomer was a wife of whoredom. Some say that she was a promiscuous woman living a wild lifestyle before marrying Hosea, and others would say that God's words were prophetic and that she wouldn't enter into this lifestyle until after she had married Hosea. But either way you slice it, that God wanted to make it clear that she would be an unfaithful spouse. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of, of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. 
She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or by the sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore another son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. What a way to introduce children who would be the next generation of the ones who would be called the Lord's. No mercy and not my people. Jezreel, you can look up some more information on this in 2 Kings, but Jezreel is a name that means God scatters. No mercy is lo ruhamah in the Hebrew, and not my people is lo ami. Scholars say that God named these children these names so that every time someone in the people of Israel would look at these children, they would know the condemnation that was on their heads, and if they believed the Lord, that they would come to a saving knowledge of him again. And further, if these children inherited and copied their mother's sins and their names became even more expressive, right, that being such as they were, that they would be scattered by God, they would not be owned by God as his people, and they would not be pitied by him. Why would the Lord call Hosea to something like this? I've heard a pastor put it this way once. Some prophets get to speak the word of God, and some prophets get to live the word of God. Some people are auditory learners and some are visual learners. Hosea's marriage to Gomer is a visual aid of what God wants to say to unfaithful Israel. And when we have the question in our minds, like why would God call somebody to something so difficult? We have to understand and rest in the reality that God is faithful in his commands. If the people of God are unfaithful, then there's got to be some repercussions, right? If you read through the book of Hosea, you know that this book has some really harsh words to say towards the people of Israel. Here's just one. I want to point us to a passage in Hosea chapter 13. Here's what it says. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Could you imagine God saying this? the God that we know and love, right? Like, 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 like this is God in, in, in raw form. And if I'm honest, there's something in me that kind of likes this about God, this, this raw nature, right? Put yourself in God's place. Imagine you have this people that you've made this covenant with. You said you are theirs and they are yours, and yet they find themselves in captivity in Egypt, but you go to Egypt and you free them. You walk with them in the wilderness. You provide for them when they had no provision. You provide for them leader after leader. And even though they failed and failed, he remained faithful and faithful. 
and yet they cheat on him with other gods and they worship false idols. And this theme throughout Hosea will continue. In chapters 4 through 5, Israel will be accused of a lack of knowledge of God. In chapters 6 through 11, they'll be accused of a lack of mercy and kindness. And in 12 through 13, they will be accused of a lack of truth and a lack of faithfulness. See, maybe it's me, but every time I think about the unfaithfulness of Israel in the Old Testament, I'm tempted to be blown away. I mean, hindsight is 20-20, but, 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 but you can see it clearly. God is so faithful to the people of Israel. And the book of Hosea is only telling like one account of the unfaithfulness of Israel, but it's spread all through the Old Testament. And I can't help but think, yo, Israel, how could you? How could you seek after other gods when your true God is so faithful? I think we find some insight in chapter 2. Look at verse 4 here with me. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, and look at this, here it is, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She will pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Did you catch it? If you're like me and you're asking yourself, how can unfaithful Israel be so unfaithful? It's because they have their loves misordered. In that back half of verse 5, look at that again. It says, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. In that back half of verse 7, it says, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than it is now. Israel thought that the other things that they gave themselves to were the source of their provision. And secondly, they thought that they could always come back to their true lover. In other words, they misplaced where their help came from, and they took advantage of the grace of God. Tim Keller, a pastor and author out in New York, Um, He has this book called Counterfeit Gods. If you've never read it, read it. He has this quote in there that talks about uh, our hearts, right? And he says this, that our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. We were made to worship. And if we're not worshiping the one true God, then we are going to be worshiping something. Parents in the room, I have spoken to countless teenagers and young adults, right, of which I used to be among. And I heard them say, you know, I'll get serious about God later. I won't do it now. Now is not the time. But I'll do it later, right? I got time. I'm young. I'm youthful. I got things going for my lives. I got things to do. But the reality is, is that we are able to say that in our youth because we find ourselves blinded and temporarily pleased by the world in a way where we maybe have heard about the true life giver, and maybe even we want the true life giver, but we tell them to wait because we're not quite done with the counterfeits yet. 
See, Israel fell into this camp as well. And they thought that if anything should ever fail, as they're running after these things, as they're putting God on hold, that, hey, I can always come back to God later. I know he's going to take me back. We trample on the grace of God. But what does God say about this? If you think you can always come back to your true lover, God says this in verse 10 of chapter 2. Look at this. No, I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. See, the greatest truth about Christianity is that Jesus, full stop, saves us from our sin and saves us from the penalty of death. But sometimes in our sinful behavior, he allows us to feel the weight of our consequences. Unfaithful relationships end up in breakup or sometimes even divorce. Cheating on tests end up getting expelled from school. Cheating in work end up getting you fired. Committing crimes end up getting you put in jail. This is a very real reality in our lives. You see, some of us in here, although saved by Christ, can still remember and feel the scars that sin left decades ago. The fact that God sometimes leaves our scars doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. Maybe it means that he's gracious enough to keep them there just to remind us how much he loves us. See, some things are imprinted in our memory that you wish you could forget, and some things are literally imprinted on your body that serve as a physical reminder. But here's what the love of Christ does. It reminds us that the consequences of our sin, although tragic, they are not final. So as we read this text and we see judgment... (laughs) is just permeating through the text. But we have to ask ourselves, yo, is judgment the only message that we see in this book of Hosea? And if we read it closely, I got to say no, right? There, There seems to be something else that's bubbling to the top as we read through the text. Not only is there this sense of judgment and consequence, but there's also this sense of restoration. Why? This leads me to my second point. It's because God is faithful in his judgment. We see he's faithful because he reverses the curse of the children. He calls them not my people and he calls them no mercy. And even though the people are called not my children and no mercy, he holds on to this promise that he made way back in Genesis that says this. If you flip back to Hosea chapter 1, the end of that chapter, verse 10, it says this. Let the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And then the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. 
there's not only judgment, but there's also restoration. And we see also the reversal of the curse on the wife, Hosea chapter 2, 16 through 20. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my bail. For I will remove the names of the bells from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. We're reminded here that yes, you will again receive mercy and that yes, you will again be my people, but yes, you may also receive consequences. You see, Hosea holds this very real tension together in life. We're in the same book, you have verses where God is like, I wanna rip you open like a lion. On top of verses where he's like, I wanna love you forever. He can simultaneously say, I am this angry at sin, but I am this madly in love with you. This is the God that we serve. And isn't this also how we are? (laughs) Some of us this morning, we're riding to church today, arguing the car about the laundry, (laughs) but everything will be all right after Sunday brunch, right? (laughs) You know, I, I feel this as a parent, right? I have kids and uh, bedtime is wild. And so they always come downstairs out of their bed and, and I can scream at them, get back upstairs. The third time, the fifth time, <laughs> the seventh time. And then five minutes later, be like, I, I, I love you so much. Right, we understand this reality. But when I do it because I'm fallen, right, I'm harsh. And I'm sinful, but when God does it, he brings right and good correction. It's his rod and his staff. His rod and his staff brings comfort. He is faithful in his judgment. And lastly, he is faithful in his pursuit. Look at chapter 3 with me. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who was loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. See, let me remind you, this is the story about Hosea and Gomer. And Gomer is Hosea's wife. And they have these children And here Gomer is, she's leaving the house and she's going out and she's doing her unfaithful thing. So if you read here in the text, like Gomer's gone from the house now. She's nowhere to be found. And the Lord comes to Hosea and he says, go again, love a woman who is in love with another man and is in an adulterous relationship. So you gotta be thinking to yourself, man, like what exactly did this look like? What did it look like for Hosea to go pursue Gomer? Hosea's at the house. He's got three kids. Like, yo, did he call up the babysitter and say, yo, you got to come watch the kids. And as he's leaving the house and he's going to places that he had never gone before, talking to people he had never spoken to before, he's like, yo, have you seen my wife? 
Have you seen Gomer? I'm looking for her. Did you imagine the responses he must have gotten? I saw her a couple days ago, but I don't know where she is anymore. Are y'all still together? I'm sorry, I didn't know. Well, could you point me in her direction? Well, last time I saw her, she was over there. And you can imagine this pursuit in these conversations that Hosea had to have in order to find his wayward wife. And when he finds her, the text shows us that like he had to buy her back. You can imagine this scenario of her being on this auction block and there's people surrounding her and there's people who are raising their hands and saying, yo, I've got 10 shekels of silver. I've got 12 shekels of silver. I've got 20 shekels of silver. And then off in the distance, she hears this super familiar voice. And it's the voice of Hosea who finally catches up and he says, look, I don't have 20 shekels of silver, but I've got 15. I've got 15 and I'll throw in some wheat. <laughs> I'll throw in some barley, whatever it is, whatever it takes. She's my wife. Just give her back. I'll give it all. This is an unthinkable thing. This is unimaginable. And it's the thing that God calls Hosea to. Why? Because this is exactly what God would do. Not only for the nation of Israel, but for you, my friends. You see, the story of Hosea and Gomer is not only the story of God and Israel, but it's the story of God and you. And guess what? We don't get to play the place of Hosea. You are Gomer. So you've been unfaithful and you've chased after other things. You've run after other gods. You've worshiped other things and people and you found yourself in bondage as a slave to sin. You see, church, we just like Israel often forsake God and choose something else. We often usher ourselves into the valley by will. And God has every single right to punish us. He has every single right to cut us off. He has every single right to say no mercy and not my people. And yet, through his son Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection, he gives us immeasurable amounts of mercy. Immeasurable. Peter says it this way, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what's true of us now in this room if you are Christians. If you have called on the Lord and you have laid your life down and you have looked to him as Savior, you said, no more me and all of you, God. This is what's true of you. He looks at you no more and, and not says, no mercy, not my people, but he says, you receive immeasurable mercy. And not only are you my people, but 
you are always my people. What a truth for us to hold on to this morning. So what I want us to do in response to this text is I just want us to let the love of God overwhelm us today. Can we do that? Listen, to the unbeliever in the room, here's what I want to say to you. God isn't making the decision to chase after you because you're so lovable. He's not making the decision to chase after you because you're a nice person. He doesn't see you trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He doesn't see you on the right side of all the thought aisles. He doesn't look at you that way. Romans 5.8 tells us that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. There are two things that we can do with this truth. You can abuse it and take it for granted, or you can respond to it. And I'm going to pray we respond to it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your unfailing and your never-ending love. But we are at best undeserving. And yet your pursuit of us tells us that we are of supreme worth to you. I pray this reality reaches who it needs to today, that you are faithful even when we are faithless. You are faithful even when we are faithless. You are faithful even when we are faithless. We are so often faithless, Lord. Yet you pursue us with reckless abandon and you come with gifts, all the mercy and wide open arms to receive us as family. Lord, the only thing you ever want from us is for us to come home. And so I plead with us all, come home. In Jesus' name I pray.